Hey, my name's Ben. I already said that, but just to reintroduce myself. Um, and we're doing this series called Anchored, and I, I, a big fan, and, and let me tell you, just to be transparent, a couple of reasons why we do this. One is because of the question that this um, series aims at, which is to say, how do we as a church um, stay anchored? Um, and what anchors do is anchors just don't keep you in the same place. Anchors actually keep you from drift um, while allowing you to um, kind of do whatever it takes to accommodate, to fluctuate um, to, the, to the tides and the winds and the waves and all that kind of stuff if you've ever been on a boat. And you know that, that you're trying to stay in this, this spot because if you go too far out, you might get lost. You kind of get into places you ought not be. And at the same time, if you're too rigid, um, too structured, then what happens is um, <laughs> you can't adjust to the, to the waves and, and you sink, right? And so the idea behind the series is we're looking at, we're saying, man, how can we as Christians with culture who is moving incredibly fast, the waves and the winds of culture which are moving incredibly fast, how can we as a people um, understand how we are to package the gospel the timelessness of it in a timely package without one becoming so strict and rigid that we become irrelevant and on the other side of it without going to a place where we actually just mirror culture, right? And so how do we, how do we navigate that? And a big reason for this with our church, and while we do something like this almost every fall, is the fall kicks off for us a new ministry season. Um, and whenever we come together, being a non-denominational church, and by non-denominational, what I really mean is we're Baptists without the reputation, right? Um, but what, when we come together, we bring people from all different places and spaces in terms of faith. Um, some of you come from a background where, where it was a non-denominational church, and you don't know a pastor who doesn't wear um, jeans and a T-shirt and flip-flops and sit on a stool, right? And that's, that's your background and upbringing. Some of you, you were um, like me, you were raised maybe in, in a higher, um, they call it a higher church, but high church. But it, all, it makes it sound like the other ones are low church, which I categorically reject. But anyways, right, the Episcopal, I was raised in an Episcopal church, and we didn't know someone who wasn't a pastor who didn't wear a robe, which I got to wear a couple times, and you want to talk about looking goofy, right? Your boy in a robe is just not like we do. It's, it's, it's oil and water, and um, right, so stained glass, incense. Um, some, some of you raised in the service were like they chant the entire service. And you're like, when's this dude about to chant? Never, okay? And that's a service to you. That's how I love and serve you. Um, and some of us, you, you don't have any real um, faith background in terms of, of, of a, you know, church or denomination, that's awesome because for you, what you've done is you've probably just you know, cut and pasted together what you have observed and what you have seen um, people and Christians do. But that's simply to say, when we come together as a group, because there is so much diversity in the backgrounds we're from, um, we have to say these are the irreducible minimums that we are dropping as anchors, that we refuse to sway from, that gives us the opportunity to have conversations around a lot of other things. And so this is for us. What are the anchors for us as a church? What are the things that cause us to not drift too far, but not so be, be so rigid in who we are that we don't acknowledge that the world is changing incredibly fast? And we have to be able to love and serve and reach the culture and the world around us. So Anchored aims to do that. Week one, we just basically talked about the fact that 
we are going to interface with culture in a way that we don't explicitly create in, in, in total culture wars. Um, we're going to be a student. In fact, I said this, uh, we're going to be a student, not a critic. And I would say this, we're going to be a student first, a critic second. We're going to be a student first, a critic second. In fact, at every opportunity, we're going to be a student and we're going to go and we're going to go alongside the cultural assets that already exist to say, how can we use those to build bridges and not burn them? Right? Some of us have been in churches where the entire thing is everybody else is bad, everybody else is bad, everybody else is bad, everybody else is bad. And we want to talk about the, we want to talk about marriage, we want to talk about gender, but nobody else is even acknowledging the fact that 90% of the people in the church look at pornography on a regular basis. And so if you're here and you're not really the person of faith, you're looking at that saying, why do y'all make such a big deal about the sin of other people? Not your own. Which I would say, that's a great point. But that's simply to say this. The idea is we are going to interface with culture. And so our irreducible minimums start as somebody was asking Jesus. And they said, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What's the most important commandment? Jesus, there are over 600 commandments in the Old Testament. On top of that, there's all of the traditions of the elders that were kind of guardrails so that you don't break the other things. So there were hundreds, if not thousands, of rules that people would use to kind of regulate religious life. And they say, at the core of it, what is at the core of it? And Jesus didn't reject the premise that there was a core of it. He said this. He said, let me tell you. The first and most important commandment is that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Which is one that we, I think, know. Most of us know, okay, you're supposed to love God. But the idea of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is is implicit in that your entire being. Your entire being. You're saying, God, I love you with everything I have. And if we're being honest... Most of us love God like we love the ant that we don't like that much and doesn't live close to us, right? It's like there's like a general deference. Like, okay, yeah, you're good. You know, I'm, yeah, of course you know. But if you say something, I'll probably listen until you're not looking anymore, you know? And I, and I know I, I have an affiliation with you familially, which gives me a sense that I am, you know, I, I love you because you're my aunt. But like, <laughs> I would never think, man, I love my aunt with my entire being. That, that'd be weird. Let's just be honest. If you're from Perry, you've probably thought that, but I'm <laughs> just kidding. It's inappropriate. Anyways, <laughs> welcome to church. Um, but most of us, when we view God, isn't this true? When we view God, like that's how, that's how we have a tendency to, to, to think about and love God. And, and we said this last week, but the problem with loving God and being in love with God and loving God with our entire being is that you can't make yourself love someone, Right? It's very, very difficult to be like, yeah, I'm just going to decide that I'm going to love you with my entire being. But that a love for God, a sustainable love for God is first born out of and spawned out of and grown out of the idea of God's overwhelming love for us. That I love God as a response to his love for me, not because I'd done it in autonomy and decided I'm just good enough to love God. That when I realize the massive chasm between God and I because of his holiness and because of my sinful rebellion and the fact that I can't be good enough to earn my way into God's good graces, but God saw that, knew that, did not expect that, in fact, did the opposite. He paid for the penalty that my sin caused to get a reconciliation for my restitution for my sinfulness that God now sees me and says, you are forgiven and you are clean, and you have, you have that not because you are, but because of who I am. Not because you deserved it. Not because you were lovable, but because you're not. 
which when we get that gives us an overwhelming sense of love back for him. So then he says this, which brings us to this week. He says, and the second one is like it. Or the second one is connected to it. Or you can understand the first one by the level of depth of the second one. You can understand the love for God, he says. The second one is like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. If there was ever a commandment that was for 2021, I think that is the commandment that is so difficult, so challenging, and so incredibly nuanced. In fact, there was another time, which is what we're going to read about today, when Jesus is talking, and another teacher of the law basically comes and challenges Jesus. I want to read this together. So Luke chapter 10 says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Again, classic lawyer. So he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, being Jesus, said to him, the lawyer, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, hey, you get this law. You understand this. You know what's going on. You're asking me. You're a teacher of the law. You, you tell me. What do you say it says? And he, being the lawyer, answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Now, this was a common thing for them. This, um, people growing up as Jewish girls and Jewish boys, this is from the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses said this. And this is something they would recite daily. They knew that this was a core tenet. But when Jesus answered the other lawyer, what he said was, the other one is like it, you shall love the neighbor, your neighbor as yourself, which was taken from this little part of Leviticus. And so he kind of gets the first part, and it's almost like he's trying to get Jesus like, yeah, dude, I know the answer to the question. I know how this rolls. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, being Jesus, said to the lawyer, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, this is not typical Jesus. If you know Jesus' um, rhetorical style, somebody would ask him a question, and he would ask them a question, and his question would be so interesting, confounding, or he'd tell them a story, and it would just, they'd be like, Right? They would just, they would be, they, I mean, he's God, right? So he probably knows the answer to this stuff. And so they'd ask him a question, and he would say something back. But this time, Jesus says, no, 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 you got the right answer. Now that you got the right answer, do it. So if how you inherit eternal life is to do this, then you have to do this perfectly in order to inherit eternal life. And so something about what Jesus said and something about the way that Jesus lived challenged this person. And so as the teacher of the law sees this, he knows intuitively that he has not lived up to this standard. And as he has not lived up to the standard, he seeks to justify himself. And he says this, but he, the lawyer, designed to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? Now, the reason he asked that question, because there was a lot of debate. So in Leviticus 19, um, where I know everybody, again, was having their quiet time this morning. So let me read it for all of us that weren't in there. So Leviticus 19, 18 says this. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone amongst your people. Don't seek revenge or a grudge against your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the whole context that they originally knew this was in the context of your people, your people, your people. And so he looks at Jesus seeking to justify himself. He says, okay, so who was my neighbor? Let me define who that is. Or Jesus, would you define that for me? And here's why that's an important question for us today. We might not ask that out loud, but we act on that internally. 
We might not say, who is my neighbor? But we have an assumption about who our neighbor is, and out of the overflow of our assumption of our neighbor, we act. And so here's what a lot of our assumption is. A lot of our assumption is our neighbors, the one that we're supposed to love as ourselves, love your neighbor as yourself, is the one who's honestly a little bit like me. They're the person who thinks what I think. They're the person who most often believes what I believe, you know, both about, you know, kind of ideological worldview, you know, about the Bible, about God. They're oftentimes a person that has the same um, political affiliation as me. They're the same type of person that has the same, I don't know, vaccine affiliation, the same mask affiliation, right? These are the people, these are the people who are like me, and that's who I'm supposed to love and to serve. And when we disagree, the way, we, the way that we love and serve the people who are not like us, it's easy. We just post about it. Because, I mean, if, if, they just, if they just knew what I knew, then they would think what I think. So to put some parameters around it, he asks, and who is my neighbor? And so Jesus replied with a non-answer but a story, which is, by the way, why I love Jesus, which is why, by the way, we always think, like, man, I'd love to ask Jesus a question, and you, you wouldn't. Um, because he would answer it with this confusing story. He'd be like, dude, that's more frustrating, all right? So here's what he says. So who is my neighbor? Jesus says, a man was going down to Jerusalem. It's like, no, 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 no. I asked a specific question. Jesus says, I know, I'm getting there. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jer- Jericho. He's just not saying, oh, yeah, he was going down the street. No, he was going down because there was an elevation change of about 3,000 feet um, between Jerusalem and Jericho in over, a, you know, about... 10 or 15 mile span. And as people would go from one to the other, there was inevitably a bunch of cliffs and twists and things like that where people would hang out. And this road specifically from Jerusalem to Jericho was known as like the blood road or the red road or something along those lines. And the idea behind this is this was a very dangerous road. And so there's this person who they were well aware that this road was dangerous. They were walking down this road and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him and departed leaving him half dead. The way this talks about it is not like they're just like, oh, yeah, we're just going gonna to beat him until he's half dead. They're like, we just don't care about him enough if he's dead or not. We're just taking all of his stuff. So Jesus says, there's a guy walking down the road. They were all familiar with the road. And now by chance, a priest, you could say pastor in that, was going down the road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Right, so it's kind of like I'm walking, I'm like, ooh, that junk looks gross, right? So I'm just walking by. And, and people will pick these, these ideas apart. And there's, there's, a, there's a lot of thoughts about, well, if he was dead, then part of the pastor's or the priest's you know, reason for that is he would be ceremonially unclean for a number of days, and he wouldn't be able to do his job and his duty as a priest. And so it actually made sense for him in a religious context that he would do that, and that was probably his reasoning or his justification. Maybe he saw it, and he just thought, I don't know this person. I mean, you know, perhaps he looked at him and saw, well, it's kind of your fault. I mean, in their day, you either went with a group of people or you would hire somebody to go with you down this road because if you were to go down this road on your own, it was almost predictable. It's almost like asking for, you know, getting jumped and getting beaten and getting all your stuff taken. So, so likewise, a Levite. A Levite, was, a Levite was like a mixture of a worship leader and a janitor, which I think we should bring that, that dichotomy back, by the way. <clears throat> It's a worship team. It's going to be awesome the, ninth, the 19th when we have our worship night, but boy, are those bathrooms going to be clean on the 20th. Um, 
So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side too. And there's a couple of different like versions of this translation of what this means, but kind of how most people think it parses out is that he, if the first person went by and they just like, they said, gross, that's too that's too different, that's too other than me. I'm gonna walk away from that intentionally. The next person came by, the Levite came by with a, with a level of kind of inquisitiveness, right? They were like, ooh, that's interesting. Bro, you got, you got tore up. All right, man, well, let me know, you know? But I feel informed about his situation because I saw it. In fact, you're going back like, dude, I was there for the situation, man. He was like, Ugh, right? And he had nothing. I was like, I'm like, oh, dude, like put on some clothes. He's like, I can't. You know, I'm like, all right, I get it, you know. And so this is the person. This is the person. And if I'm going to be honest, this is where I think is the easy trap to fall in. Because we think being informed about someone else's suffering is synonymous with action and advocacy for their suffering. We think that because we saw it and we know about it and we have all the information about it, we have an opinion and we have a platform that we can post about it or we can talk about it, but have done nothing for it. So if the first person is just indifferent, the second person has an, has an informed passivity. Just so likewise, the Levite came, saw the place, passed him on the other side. But a Samaritan. But a Samaritan. And we contextually don't understand how big of a deal that was. Because he is about to flip this on its head. Jews and Samaritans, to say they hated each other is to put it lightly. Um, if they were going from Jerusalem to another city that was on the other side of Samaria, they would literally walk around. The, and they, this was not like they have cars and they're like, oh, I'm going to walk around the building. Like this was like miles and miles and miles and miles out of the way. Um, the brief history, and, and many of you have learned this about, about this in your Old Testament class or um, in your history class, was that the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was, you know, one group of people got split into two groups of people, the ten tribes of the north, the two tribes of the south. Well, the Assyrians became the world's superpower. The Assyrians came and destroyed in 722 B.C. or B.C.E., if you're a religion department nerd. Um, they came and they destroyed the, the, the city and they destroyed the temple and they destroyed a bunch of stuff that was in the northern kingdom. But what the Assyrians realized is if we don't do something, if we just leave people there after having conquered them, then there's going to be an uprising. And so they would basically bring people in who are from the Assyrian Empire to colonize the place, which created an interesting commingling of gods and idolatry that happened and existed within their context and their borders. And so it was a place of incredible compromise. Well, a number of years later, the Babylonians became the world's superpower. The Babylonians took over the southern kingdom as they did. Um, eventually, the Persians took over the Babylonians. Again, I know everybody's notes, notes, notes. But the Persians took over the Babylonians. As the, Bab as the Persians took over, they said, okay, you can now go back to your home in Jerusalem to the southern kingdom. But the problem was, is there were some of the people who were the colonizers from the Assyrian party that were living there. They basically kicked them out. And from that point forward, at any point in time, when there was a warring nation wanting to threaten the city or the place of Jerusalem and Judea, what would happen is all of the Samaritans would partner with them them and basically get them inroads to destroy them. So these were hundreds of years of animosity and frankly terrorism built up to the people who lived in Jerusalem. 
And so this wasn't like, oh, yeah, we just don't like them. They're Gator fans, you know? Of course, you know, who would like somebody who's, like, Irish, like, the, you know, Notre Dame? That's ridiculous. No, this was, this was extreme. And so when Jesus entered, he says, okay, there's about to be a hero in this story. And this is the most unlikely hero. In fact, this is the opposite. This is the anti-hero is about to be the hero. And so they're just kind of listening. And this was stepping on all kinds of toes. So Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. He saw him and he had compassion. That's like this mixture of like, he understood what was going on with the biased reaction. He had a heart. He understood the plight. He understood the strife. In the midst of incredible relational discord between these groups of people, he saw and he had compassion. So he went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Which is, by the way, like in their day was a good way to take care of wounds. In our day, it's don't like, you know... Your kid like skins his knees like, I got some wine and some oil. Let's just, you know, here you go, Barton. He set him on his own animal. In other words, I know that you have a need, and so I'm going to intentionally go and sacrifice for you. I'm going to pour out this stuff on you. I'm going to give clothes on your back. I'm going to help heal you, and I'm going to put you on my animal, and I'm going to take you somewhere. He took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. That's about two to three weeks worth of of rent at this particular inn. And gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of them. And whatever more you spend, in other words, anything else, I will repay. I will repay you when I come back. And so he ends the story with this question to the teacher of the law. He ends the story to basically say, if you ask me who is my neighbor, here's the question in light of that story that I'm going to ask you back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? If you're asking me, who is my neighbor, let me ask you a better question, and you cannot miss this. When Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor, put parameters, put ideas, put thoughts around that. And again, the reason why that's such a tempting question is because if we can do that, it alleviates the messy gray. If we can define our neighbor and who we are called to love and serve and how we're called to love and to serve them, it takes all of the minutia and all of the little details and all of the messiness, right? Because if I'm supposed to love you, I just know I'm supposed to love you. If I'm not supposed to love you, I'm not supposed to love you. And that's really, really easy, and that makes it a, a far less stressful thing because it's not messy. But Jesus looks at him and says, hey, you want to ask me who your neighbor is to try to confine that for you, put parameters and fencing around that? Let me just tell you, I am much more interested in how to be a neighbor. Not who is my neighbor, how to be a neighbor. Who am I supposed to be, not just who am I supposed to serve? Because if I am a neighbor, I will serve everyone around me. So Jesus asks him, and he says this. He says, so which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And he, being the lawyer, said, and I think he was gritting his teeth when he responded, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say the Samaritan. He clearly gave him titles. The priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. Which one? It's like the one who, you know, did the thing that he was supposed to do. That's the one. So Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Well, Jesus, what if in doing likewise... What if doing likewise 
it seems like I'm affirming the things that I don't actually agree with because I'm loving and serving this person. Yep. Go do likewise. Well, Jesus, what if they don't, what if they don't ever agree with what I think and with what I believe? Yeah. You go and you do likewise. Well, Jesus, now, now, you know, what if in trying to help, I actually hurt? Yeah, you go and you do likewise. In other words, Jesus looks at someone with a relational disconnect, in fact, enmity between the two, and saw that one was hurting, broken, and in need, and the Samaritan stopped and met that need, loved that person, served that person, helped to restore that person, and says, go do the same. And here's was the, here was the brilliance of what Jesus just did, and you can't miss this. What Jesus' macro question the lawyer was asking him was, how do I inherit eternal life? To justify himself, he wants to say, who is my neighbor? Jesus flips the whole thing on his head and says, let me tell you and let me show you that you have, in fact, not been a good neighbor because you have not done these things. I have not done these things. We have not done these things, but you know who did do these things? Jesus used a parable of someone who had relational rift and someone who was hurting, broken, in need, and who saved them to prove to the person, to prove to the lawyer that the lawyer was in fact a person who was hurting, broken, in need, and being saved, even though he had rebelliously rebelled relationally. In other words, Jesus looked at him saying, my dude, you're the guy on the side of the road. And the reason that we love and the reason that we serve and it and, and, and doesn't make sense to wrestle with the thoughts and the details and the minutiae and all of the little things about how we parse, parse out. How do we help without hurting? How do, we, how do we empower without enabling? Those are awesome things. But what if our bias was for action and not for conversation with a side little flippant thing of perhaps we'll help out if we become convinced enough and if it's convenient enough? What if we just decided that we're going to serve regardless And in the process of serving, we're going to figure it out. Because here's what you'll figure out, is that until you actually get in the serve, you won't figure it out. Because it's all ethereal. And the best plans, one of my favorite quotes of all time, Mike Tyson, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face, right? No, no, (laughs) aggressive, but right? But but that's kind of like that no battle plans, you know, survives first contact. Until you actually get in there and do it, it's almost impossible because it's just theorizing about the theoretical, about the people that you might help and how they might react as opposed to actually being there and doing the thing. So Jesus looks at this group of people. Jesus looks at this lawyer and says, oh, go and do the same thing. And as Christians, this is why we say a love for God is the preeminent thing. Because for me to love someone else, for me to love someone else in spite of the fact that there might be a sense of otherness, in fact, Because there's a sense of otherness, it takes me realizing that God loved me in my otherness. Someone who maybe even is relationally rebelling against me, it takes me coming to the realization that God lovingly served me and died for me in light of my rebellion. And if ever, if ever, we get to the point where we have a reason not to love and serve someone, here's the question I think we should all ask. And, 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 and even if you don't, 
do anything with it. We at least deserve it. We, we owe it to ourselves to ask this question. What if Jesus had said that about me on the cross? Well, I don't want to serve you because we, we, we're different. We, we identify different. We think different about, about gender. We think different about sexuality. We think different about you know, masks. We think different about vaccines. We think different about foreign policy. We think different about economic policy. We think different about you know, ethnicity. We think different about all these. We think different theologically. We think different doctrinally. We think about different about all these things. <laughs> Can you imagine if Jesus was on the cross and he was like, I would die for them, but they're Republicans are they they're Democrats? Are you kidding me? I can't die for them. I would die for them. Man, I mean, what if they take my death and just misuse it and mistreat it? What if, what if they take my death and actually just use it as a permission to sin more? I'd say that sounds a lot like the church sometimes. I think the truth is, is the reason that we don't do this is because we don't actually want to look in the mirror. It's a lot, a lot, a lot easier to look at the ugliness of your sin than it is to acknowledge the ugliness of my sin. Because when I do that, I have to be forced to face the reality that I am simply a sinner in need of a Savior telling other sinners where to find that Savior. What if we had a bias for action? Not qualifiers. What if the church loved and served as the primary and not the secondary. And so that's what, one of the things, that's what we're committed to as a church, is that a radical love for God creates a radical love for other people, regardless of who they are, what they look like, what they think, what they believe. We will serve with no presuppositions. And that's difficult, and that's messy. And we, to be truthful, don't want to create a narrative void in how to do that. Um, oftentimes churches, and I'll, I'll be very clear about this, oftentimes when churches, they have things of like, okay, now we want you to sign up and serve with the church. It's a, it's a thing that's kind of like focused on like, okay, we need you to serve. Like we're going to have, we're going to have service regardless. Here's what we know is that we have to create places and opportunities for people to, to engage and to start with this, both inside and outside of the church, in the community as a whole, as well as internally in the, inside the church. And the reason is, the reason is, is because as an organization, we model what's important. Everybody does, right? We model what's important. Um, when you find that Florida State playing Notre Dame is important, <laughs> we model that by paying a lot of money to go get tickets to go to the game, or if you're a student, you just signed up for something, but you'll pay for it someday. Right, this is the problem, kind of like parents, sometimes this is our issue. Um, we tell our kids, I oh, mean, you, you, should, you should be about other people, you should be conscious, you should share, you should do all this kind of stuff, right? And the entire thing that we do is, kid, it's about you, it's about you, it's about you, it's about you, it's about your education, it's about your tutoring, it's about your youth sports, you're honestly not that athletic, but you know, but hey, we want you to know, Jimmy, that you're going to be something someday. It's like, no, you're not. <clears throat> Right, but and I say this too as my I acknowledge this in myself as a parent that sometimes sometimes I get frustrated with my kids and it's like, man, why don't you care about other people more? And it's because everything that we're doing as a family organization and entity says it's all about life revolves around the world revolves around our kids and we're wondering why our kids are so focused. 
It's like, man, I wish my kids used, you know, manners. It's like, all right, well, when's the last time you said yes, ma'am, when you didn't have to? When's the last time you said yes, sir? When's the last time you said please and thank you? If we said that as much as we demanded of our kids, then our kids would probably have a lot better manners. And also, they're kids, so they just do whatever they want sometimes. So that's not like a catch-all. But, but here's the point. As a church, we have to organizationally model this, and our hope is that as people serve with us, this is not the end of it. It's not like when you go on a mission trip, it's like, oh, man, I did it. I serve people. Wow. Pat on the back, spiritual brownie point. You know, you are so, so selfless. No, that introduces us to how life could and should be. Mission trips, short-term mission trips at their best, are not going explicitly just towards the mission. They're actually training us how to be missionaries where we live. What life could and should be like if we saw every day that I'm going to love and to serve this people group with no presuppositions. And so on your, you know, seat You've got a card that has a name, it has a phone number and email address. It has date of birth, and I don't really know why, but, you know, I guess we're, we're interested in how old you are. You don't have to fill that out. <clears throat> but so the idea behind this is we've got a number of different ways that we would love to take a first step with you in learning and in, in going towards not a finish line to say, I served, but a doorway into this is what life could and should be like. Stuff like... Um, I'll start at the bottom right, our HOPE program, which is where we have a one-on-one mentorship with kids, um, students, scholars who are living in the South City neighborhood specifically. They're living, it's the place of the highest level of um, single mother, head of household, at or below the poverty line. Uh, there's the incredible, just statistically with, with um, the population that we're loving and serving and kind of befriending in those communities, um, levels of incarceration rates and all kinds of stuff like that. And so we want to go, and we want to love, and we want to serve, and we want to be Jesus. Well, actually, we're not Jesus. We're not being Jesus. I take that back. Strike that from the record. What we want to do is be in the hands and feet and the expression of God and to say we are broken people too. We just want to love and serve and however we can. And so we have a one-on-one mentorship program that teaches holistic life lessons, skills, um, Bible, all that kind of stuff. Monday through Thursday at our church, by the way. Um, Project Tallahassee, which I'm hyped about. Some of you guys, anybody, anybody, was anybody around with Project Tallahassee the first time? Big PT? I'm excited for all nine of you who just wooed. Um, so Project Tallahassee, we also feel like we don't have to do everything ourselves, right? Sometimes the best thing that we can do is not to say we're going to reinvent the wheel. We're just going to put some air in somebody else's tires, if you will. Um, and so we love to partner with other nonprofits that are doing great stuff. And what we ultimately want to see is people doing that on a regular weekly, biweekly, monthly basis to be involved in loving and serving the community around them, especially the marginalized people groups in the community. And nonprofits are knocking that out of the park. And so what we do is we do a couple times a semester, or we're relaunching Project Tallahassee a couple times a semester, that's going to be a first kind of like a, a if you want to go, you want to check it out, and you want to see, we would love for you to go check it out, see, and love and serve that way in hopes that groups actually get connected into serving those places and those people on a regular basis. Whether it's every Thursday or every other week or whenever it is, that groups would actually be involved in loving and serving. Then we have opportunities inside the church. We have the, the tech team, um, the program team, which, you know, they make sound and lights and screens and all that kind of stuff. They make everything look incredible in here, and they do a phenomenal job. We've got our... Um, our outdoor, kind of like our neighbor's team. It's all of our coffee bar, our greeters. Here's why that's important. Every person who walked in church today decided if they liked our church before church started. And that was directly informed by the people who are volunteering. 
Every single person who walked in today, you decided when, before, before you know, Sophia got up and played some keys and William, you know, in a yoked way, played the guitar, right? Like, you decided if you liked our church. And so what we want to do is we want to be a church that helps people to love church before church starts because our ultimate goal on Sundays is for people to come back and invite a friend. Not just because we're trying to build a big church, but because we know that we're actually not good enough, spiritual enough to make you fall in love with God. What we want to do is keep setting you in the room. In other words, I can't make you love Jesus, but I can continue to set you up on dates. And that's our goal. He changes your heart, not me. It sounds um, a little bit surface level, but it's actually deeply convinced that I'm just not good enough, that God changes hearts, not me. I just want to put you in the same room as the God who is just so incredible. And our kids team, hello. <laughs> I didn't know y'all were here. That, see, the first service I said that, and they were like, oh, you know, so we'll pray for them. Um, let me tell you why kids' team is so important. Let me tell you why our kids' ministry, I think it's, and I kid you, part of it's maybe because I have kids and I'm biased, but every single one of us has a view of God, and we fight to clarify that view of God, and that's, that view of God is informed by the time that we're 10 years old. How you think about God was given to you, handed to you, thought by you, conceptualized by you, and you might now have a more adult, refined version of that, but the basis for that was formed before you were 10 years old. And our kids' team has the incredible responsibility of creating a first impression of a heavenly father that leaves a lasting impression on the heart of a child. That what they do on Sunday morning when they gather together is informing our kids and the next generation of people who God is. There is no greater responsibility. And when we do this together, let me just say this. We don't do this, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, man, I serve. But here's our hope, that when you serve in one of our areas or one of our partnerships, or maybe you just do your own thing, that's awesome, that's cool. But here's our goal, is that God, God, God was not concerned with defining his neighbor. He was concerned with his people being great neighbors. He was not defined with us putting parameters and fencing around it, which gives us clear clarity and lowers anxiety because we don't have to make decisions. We all of a sudden have to have conversations because we are great neighbors, and being a great neighbor is always messy. But so was the freaking cross, and so we should not back down because because of that. It should inspire us to do the same. And so we are committed to loving God and being great neighbors. Because when you are a great neighbor, you are a great neighbor to everyone you're around. You see needs, and you meet them, and you don't talk yourself out of it. You see needs, and you meet them, and you don't talk yourself out of it. I would love for the hallmark and the reputation of our church to be a church that is great neighbors. I would love for the hallmark and the reputation of our church is a church who, whether or not you agree, whether or not you think, whether or not you believe, whether or not you, I mean, none of that matters, that we love and serve. And in a world that is marked by only loving the people who like, who are like us, think like us, believe like us, look like us, we would be radically different. Which is just what Jesus said, is to love your neighbor as yourself. So if you want to take that step, as the service ends, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to have a team up here that would love to pray for you from our worship team. I'm going to invite you to take, that, you know, take this little guy, fill it out. We're going to follow up with you and know that it's our goal to help 
come alongside and to model the love and the serve that Jesus did for us, which is a radical love and service, especially when it's different. So let's pray together. God, I pray and I ask that you would give us, you would give us what the Good Samaritan has, which is a heart of compassion, that he saw this need and didn't talk himself out of it. He didn't look at the person that was in need and say, man, he really should have, you know, hired somebody to walk or should have gotten some friends to walk with him. He didn't look at the personal inconvenience it would cause to himself. And he didn't allow the relational tension and the need for reconciliation to be the driving force behind his decision, but he simply saw someone who was in need in spite of all that and served them. And Jesus, you did that for us. Though we did not deserve it, though we did not earn it, though we are not lovable and we are all rebellious and have rebelled against you, you still sent your son to die for us, to bridge the gap, to make us whole. And I pray that that kingdom value and that kingdom mindset would become ours, that it would drop down in our hearts and that it would emanate from a love for you, that as we fall more and more in love with you, realize more and more the love that you poured out on the cross for us, we would go and we would embody that to a lost and a hurting and a broken world, that there would be reconciliation that happens not as the church draws division, but as the church loves and serves people regardless of differences. And I pray that perhaps what you said when you gave the Sermon on the Mount is that perhaps we would be that city on a hill. Perhaps we would be the light of the world. Perhaps people would see our good deeds and not turn and think, wow, they're cool. But people would see our good deeds and turn and praise you and think there is no reasonable explanation why these people would be like that except for the fact that they're convinced a God did that for them and rose from the dead to prove that he could. I pray that they would turn and praise you, our Father in heaven, to help us to be a group of people who sees needs and meets needs and doesn't talk ourselves out of it. And when we see the person hurting, we wouldn't have a sense of superiority, but we would realize that is us, and I am them. And what I do is simply an extension of what you have done for me. So Jesus, would you give us the wisdom to know what that looks like and the courage to step into the mess and do it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, we love you guys. Thank you so much for coming to church today. Fill out this. We'll have some um, ushers with some baskets. Uh, As you walk out, you can put them in their little basket. Um, Besides that, man, go Rattlers and go Knowles. Let's go.